Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, I'm one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and I'm one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. We're going to be continuing our series on COVID in children this week. Dr Tom Cromarty, another one of the Dragon Bites hosts, and myself were joined by Dr Liz Whitaker a consultant in paediatric infectious disease and immunology who has an interest in long COVID. And together we discussed long COVID in children. This is the first of a two-part episode, so make sure you join us again next week for the remainder. Anyway, let's get started. Thanks for everyone for joining us for another podcast uh, with Dragon Bites. Uh, we're joined by Dr. Liz Whitaker today, um, who is a senior clinical lecturer in paediatric infectious diseases and immunology and works out of Imperial College London and St. Mary's Hospital and is also on the advisory group for the Royal College of Paediatric and Child Health COVID group, expert group. So we're very lucky to have her with us. Thanks for joining us. No worries. And I just wanted to also mention that today we're recording on the 11th of April, 2022, and that this is a conversation that's kind of aimed to be just a kind of curious conversation about what we know now and recognising that it's a bit of a challenging topic, um, but that there may be differences of opinion and, um, and other experiences. So thanks for joining us and we'll just crack on to start it. Sure. Asim, do you want to kick us off? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, yeah, um, hi, I'm, I'm Asim. I'll be helping out today as well. So I thought we'd start off, Liz, if it's okay with you, just by going over some of the basics of, of long COVID. So what's, what, what currently defines long COVID? This is a million dollar question. And it's basically what all of the questions are going to hang off is the fact that long COVID has become a bit of an umbrella term that covers lots of different things. So we've got a research definition for long COVID in children. And that's basically uh, any symptoms that persist after a COVID infection. And that COVID infection can be mild, moderate, severe, and that those symptoms normally last for at least 12 weeks. And in the research definition that we came up with, we said that it needed to impact on physical, mental or social well-being and that it ought to interfere with an aspect of daily living. So school, work, home, relationships, etc. Um, but I think the problem is, is particularly with adults, is that long COVID covers patients who are extremely unwell in hospital and have really significant end organ damage and take a long time to recover from that, as well as patients who never made it to hospital but um, have had quite um, significant illness at home and often end up with autoimmune problems, as well as a group of patients who've got chronic fatigue. And even amongst that, there are other clusters. So it's become a really dangerous term that actually covers lots of different problems, I think. So complicated, no simple answer there. Right. Oh, well, it makes my next question a bit more complicated as well, because um, with such a heterogeneous condition, it's probably not an easy answer to the following question, too. Um, do we have any theories as to what the cause of long COVID is? Well, I think it's really good. So I think there are multiple theories. And I think I think it's probably I'm a pediatrician, so I could focus on long COVID in kids. And maybe that's a sensible thing to do. But 
the problem is that most of the research has been done in adults. And so we end up doing what we often do with children or childhood conditions, which is extrapolating down. So the hypotheses uh, vary from there being end organ damage from the severe disease and the treatments as part of that. Um, and then in some patients, there's clearly a clotting abnormality. So COVID is very prothrombotic. It impacts the lining of your blood vessels, causes endothelial disease. It also has impacts on your platelets. And so there's a lot of work at the moment looking at something called microclots, which are tiny little clots that occur in your capillaries. So rather than you having an obvious clot like a PE or a DVT, there's lots of little clots happening at a low level in your organs, which gives you those chronic uh, symptoms. Um, the other thing that I think is quite interesting is the idea of autoantibodies. So we definitely know an autoantibody is an antibody to any part of your body. We know about autoantibodies from autoimmune conditions. So you've got rheumatoid factor and ANA and all those well-described and measured autoantibodies, but you can get autoantibodies to anything. And one of the autoantibodies that's been really interesting in severe disease and COVID is an anti-interferon antibody. And we know that patients who develop those do really badly. But there's a hypothesis that actually there might be other autoantibodies to some of your cells or the other chemokines across the immune system that might contribute to some of the symptoms as well. And then, of course, on top of every you experience persistent symptoms, there is a psychological overlay. And this comes that whole thing where patients go, it's not all in my head. And I don't think anyone, certainly anybody who works in the field will say, of course, it's not all in your head. But being sick for a long time has an impact on your psychology and your mental health. And therefore, anybody who has these symptoms needs help with that, as well as the physical symptoms themselves. So I think those are some of the main hypotheses that people are talking about at the minute. Mm, OK, so it seems to largely focus around anti inflammatory prothrombotic yes as, as well as having an overlay of psychological and mental health impacts as well which exacerbates things it makes it harder to get better if you don't help that as well as the physical stuff as well basically some of the children present with chest pain and dizziness and breathlessness um, and what we found is they've got what's known as breathing dysfunction. And this is a, probably a combination of having had a chest infection, maybe some chest pain and coughing and a bit of anxiety. And then you stop breathing in a really nice coordinated fashion, which contributes to those symptoms. And so there's some really lovely resources um, about breathing dysfunction. And actually some of the choirs teach it to get people to do proper breathing and some like kind of exercises. And actually we've had really good reports from patients about their symptom management just by breathing properly in a nice coordinated fashion so I can share those links with you. Wow well given that um, it can present in so many different ways how bad can it be? Yeah and I think that's a really good question so again going back to kids the vast majority of children and young people who experience persistent symptoms are able to crack on with normal things. They go to school, they do PE, they can go to birthday parties, they can play sports, um, but they have experiencing, they're experiencing niggling symptoms. For a very tiny proportion who we see in the clinics, they are extremely debilitated and these patients are, are really suffering. So they are unable to get out of bed. They really struggle to go to school. They've absolutely given up on all the things that they enjoy in life. So you know, these might have been young people who played a sport at a high level and now can barely walk around their own home. And so it can be extremely debilitating. But the good news is that is in a small proportion. And the bad news is that actually we really have to try and identify those people and get them the appropriate support early. So lots of people experiencing some persistent symptoms, tiny number experiencing really debilitating persistent symptoms in childhood. And how long has it been lasting for? 
And that is the other really important thing. So what we recognize is that early intervention helps you to get better. And so the patients who we see who struggle the most are those who had perhaps had COVID in March 2020 and didn't really manage to access appropriate support until, say, 2021. And actually, some of those patients are still not quite back to themselves. Whereas on the other hand, patients who became unwell, perhaps with the kind of alpha variant in January, February 2021, you know, we picked them up in April 2021. They were back to normal schooling and things by September. And I don't think that's necessarily because they were any less severe. I think it's just like many things in life. If you get the right input at the right time, your recovery is quicker. So the priority for the services and for education for schools and primary care is to say, please recognize that this is a problem that needs picking up and you can't put it, you know, on the long fingers, what we'd say in Ireland, you can't delay in getting help for these young people. They kind of need input quite soon. I consider it an emergency if children are too tired and too sick to get up out of bed to go to school, then they need seeing urgently. Uh, and, and have you noticed any patterns in in uh, in the way COVID has been presenting at all? I know you mentioned uh, about the anti-interferon antibodies, but have you noticed anything else in terms of whether there's anything that could help you predict how bad um, long COVID will be? Mm. That is one of the mysteries that we certainly see in children and young people, is that many of the young people that we've seen had really mild disease. They might have had a sore throat and a bit of fatigue, maybe a fever for a few days. And there hasn't been a particular correlation or relationship between how unwell they were of their initial infection and how unwell they are with their long COVID. And the other thing that's quite interesting that kind of leads us to this being an autoimmune or a post-infectious inflammatory phenomenon is that actually they often make a recovery and then start to experience symptoms four to five weeks later. And this for me as a researcher into PIMS, which is the other post-infectious inflammatory syndrome, makes me wonder if there's if there's similar kind of conditions. And so that's where some of the research is trying to explore whether they are related, whether then, you know, immunosuppressive therapy might be appropriate for that cohort. But it's hard to design interventions if you don't understand the pathogenesis. So still quite a lot of work to do to understand that. I mean, that's I mean, it's all really incredibly interesting. Uh, how has our understanding of long COVID changed over over the pandemic? Well, yeah, I think that if you talk to um, patient groups and support groups like Long COVID Kids UK, I think they would tell you they really battled to get it recognised. And I think I think that's, that was understandable at a point where the priority was absolutely on the, the many extremely unwell patients who were in hospital and in intensive care. And they were largely adults, right? And everybody's focus and research and, and time was on that cohort. And so there was a little bit of a delay in the beginning in recognising this and people were attributing it to that whole it's all in your head type phenomenon that this is a pandemic thing. And, and I think increasingly through 2021, there has been more of a recognition that this is a true condition that we have to acknowledge it as such and therefore we have to do research so we first got a grant funded to look at this in a grant call that we put in in kind of november december 2020 and that was the clock study and that's a prevalence study to understand how big a problem it was we've subsequently um, had funding that we've applied for over 2021 which is now looking more at the actual pathogenesis of, sort of some of those autoantibodies of the microclot phenomenon as well as also we got some funding in the autumn to look at treatment interventions. So as, as time goes by, it's easier to gain, um, uh, what's the word? It's easier to get traction in order for people to recognize that this is something that needs investment. And I have to say NHS England put a big chunk of money into this last spring and 
they ring fenced money for children's. And so we that's why we've managed to get clinical services set up. And once you start having the clinical services, it's actually easier to do the research alongside it because you've got a cohort of patients who are well recognized and defined. But I think um I think the other thing, as I said, that umbrella term that there isn't just one condition. So that's really important because otherwise it's really hard. There's a there's a I don't know what the word is, a fable and um, about how if you were blind and you were to try and describe an elephant, what you would describe would depend on the bit of the elephant you grabbed hold of. And I think that long COVID, we talked about this for PIMS, but I really think it's true for long COVID. So if you grab the trunk, everything is that. If you grab the tail, everything is that. And so we see groups of patients who have very gastro presentations, for example, and they've got really bad tummy pain and they often have urticaria. And that's probably quite different to the group of patients who've got the kind of brain fog, headache and fatigue. And if you try and understand the pathogenesis, they're probably not going to be the same. So it is really important that you phenotype your patients. And so your, your question is really important and I've rambled, but it has changed quite a lot over time. I've enjoyed the ramble very much. Thank very you. Very polite of you. <laughs> um, I'm going to pass on to Tom now. Yeah, thanks a lot, Athim. Um, I was really interested with, was it Plock um, was the name of the Clock, study? Yeah. Clock, okay. Because um, I wanted to find, <laughs> very good. Um, I wanted to find out um, about the prevalence then. And so can you give us a little oh. couple minutes um, of, of what you did in Clock and um, yeah. that kind so of thing? The prevalence is a moving target. And I have to say it varies dramatically from kind of ONS kind of one to two percent which interestingly is what post-viral fatigue has always been described in that kind of level for other viruses and um, uh, up to kind of really dramatically alarming things particularly as a parent frankly or a pediatrician tried to design a service which is about 40 percent in some kind of cohorts initially and I think um, with clock it came down to about 11 percent had some persistent symptoms. What CLOCK did was um, trying to look at patients not coming to healthcare services, but look in the community. Uh, we partnered with uh, PHE or UKHSA as they are now. And we um, invited young people who between the ages of 11 and 17, because that's where you most see kind of long COVID symptoms um, to take part in the study. And so uh, if whether you had a known COVID infection, these are patients who are being tested regularly. So you know their status. Um, and we asked them to fill in a questionnaire. And so you had young people who definitely had COVID and young people who definitely didn't have COVID. And they both filled in this kind of symptom questionnaire, which looked at physical symptoms, as well as like uh, mental health problems and emotional well-being um, and impact on function. And then we were able to compare those symptoms in the two groups. And I think there was the one thing that was quite stark was that actually patients in both groups in this age group, quite a lot, I'm trying to I'm terrible at numbers, that it was a reasonable percentage actually experienced persistent symptoms, whether or not they've had COVID. And I think that's partly being a teenager um, and partly just if you're asked about symptoms, you may be more likely there's a bit of a confirmation bias in recognizing they were there. But when we compared the two groups, there was an increase in multiple symptoms in those patients who definitely have COVID. And so there's this phenomenon that lots of people might experience experience headaches or a sore throat or a bit of tiredness, but patients who had COVID were more likely to experience headaches and sore throat and mm. loss of sense of smell. So they had multiple symptoms at once. Mm. And that was about 11% of those who'd had symptoms. And that was up to 12 weeks. And we're currently analyzing how long that lasts, basically. So what are they at six months? And what are they at nine mm. months? And so hopefully we'll be able to give you that data soon. Okay. And, and it sounds like it must be a challenge, you know, like you saying, it's such an umbrella um, kind of term. 
to work out the actual prevalence amongst you know as a general average is gonna it's, it's, it's very difficult to work out yeah um, and I think as well one of the things that we invited um so we had we had about 11,000 responses in the end, um, but it was only um, a small proportion of those who were invited. And one of the things that we don't know is, are they reflective of the whole group who, of young people? Or do you only respond to a survey if you're experiencing symptoms? And so mm. that is always one of the limitations of this kind of study. Um, but because we were comparing positive and negative, I think the important thing was to see how much worse with the positive group than the negative group. Um, what did come out, and again, because this is a community study, is that this didn't have a huge impact function-wise. Um, and I think this comes back to how much do the how debilitating are these symptoms and how big a problem are they? And I think that's something that clock is perhaps not very well designed to answer. Um, but what we are doing is um, we are comparing the questionnaires in the patients who come to the 15 MDTs, 15 clinics across the England with the clock cohort to, to see how the severe end of the spectrum compares with the kind of community less severe end of the spectrum. Because I think that's also really important is if you're one of those people accessing healthcare, what differences are there and what can that tell us about why you're severe and things like that? Mm. Um, and I don't think we have those answers yet. Yeah. And, and you might not um kind of be a place to say what the differences are between long covid in adults and children if you don't know everything about the adult ones but are there stark differences like there are in the, the actual kind of pathology of mm. the covid covid19 itself the acute so, yeah that is true so we're really fortunate through the uclh service which i co-lead um in that we um join the adult mdts and one of the things that is clearly different is that there are measurable end organ changes in adults who've got long COVID, not all of them, but in a good proportion of them. And so they will have um, myocarditis on an MRI scan, or they'll have clots, or they'll have lung changes, or sometimes brain MRI changes and things like that. And in the really debilitated group that we see in the clinic, we always look really hard because my biggest fear is that we'll miss something that's, you know, really treatable and really important not to miss. And so we've done quite a lot of brain MRIs and cardiac MRIs and echoes and all these kind of things. And actually, in none of the cohorts have we found any clinical, like measurable evidence by the by the test that we have. And I will recognize that's a limitation of end organ damage in our cohort. And that just tells us probably two things one is that it's a different spectrum of disease and the other is that we probably don't have the right tests because you know there was something that we just don't know what yet it is yet we don't yet know what it is we have to measure um, and so I think that that does tell us that adults and children are different um, and I think um, that's why these pathogenesis research studies are so important so that we can identify the right test for diagnosis and prognosis for these children and their families mm, okay Interesting. Um, and you mentioned earlier about, you know, obviously different symptoms for different different individuals. If you if, if a young person didn't have that symptom as part of their, you know, you said they had whatever it's fatigue or headaches or whatever it is, and then got slightly better and then had these kind of post viral symptoms later on. If you didn't have these symptoms initially, is that something that you don't get them later on? You just have the same ones later or it could be whatever. Yeah, we haven't particularly seen a relationship like that, um, but we do have BSC. So it's really hard to predict who's going to get it. I think um, 
that was going like, to be the next question. Yeah, a bit like <laughs> him said a bit. So there's difference I see. So we have um, severe COVID, and in in the research we've done looking at severe COVID disease causing pneumonia and intensive care admission, there are absolutely comorbidities that are associated with worse outcomes in children and young people. So those, particularly those young people who've got neurodisabilities and potentially other risk factors, they seem to be more likely to get severe COVID. However, for both PIMS and long COVID, there is no particular one group who seem more likely to develop it. So it does seem to occur predominantly in healthy young people. And for long COVID, we have seen... um, And perhaps I think this reflects the mental health and emotional health difficulties. So young people who have pre-morbid difficulties, such as neurodevelopmental problems or previous anxiety or Tourette's and things like that, that sometimes they struggle a bit more with the symptoms they're experiencing and need a bit more help to recover. And so we certainly see a group within the big service who have or have neurodisabilities and other issues. And I think that makes sense because a lot of those conditions go alongside with anxiety. And therefore, if you're experiencing persistent symptoms, then you do need a bit more help to overcome them. And, but I don't think that's a predisposition. I think it's more of an ability to recover without extra support. Um, and so I think that's the only thing that we've recognized a little bit of a link with in terms of needing extra help and being more severe with long COVID. Okay. And, and is it a kind of 50-50, um, you know, differences between sexes or? So we definitely see um, more girls in the teenage cohort, um, whether that's better, they're better at expressing or seeking help. I'm not really sure whether there is actually a gender difference, um, uh, but not necessarily in the younger ones. So most of the young people we see are in secondary school um, and there are additional stressors. So we do see that... Uh, GCSEs are very stressful. I think that's not surprising. If you're missing school and you know you have exams, then everything becomes mm. a little bit bigger um, out of proportion. We do we do see younger children between the ages of five and eleven, but they're a lot less common, and they tend to have more of the tummy pain end of the spectrum. But I don't think mm. that's that different to other things we see in general pediatrics, to be honest. Mm. Um, uh, and apart from that, I don't think there are particular patterns. But we do have two BSc students at UCLH and the Evelina in our London practice who are trying to tease all these about. So we've seen about 130 children in our service. So um, I'm hoping that we'll be able to see that. One thing I will say um, is that uh, CLOCK had good representation from different ethnicities and social backgrounds. But in the clinics, um, there is an over-representation of Caucasian children um, and an under-representation of BAME ethnicities. Um, And this worries us because I think that we're struggling um, perhaps to support those young people because we know they were over-represented with COVID in hospital and with um, infections initially, although that's probably balanced out. So we are doing some active case finding and going into schools and trying to do some advocacy to make sure that they're not being left behind. Um, so that is something that we've been a little bit concerned about. And I just wanted to say thank you to Dr. Liz Whitaker and to Tom for recording that episode for us. Make sure you tune in again next week for the remainder of that episode. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.